This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, listeners. Today, my guest is Cassidy Hall. Cassidy is a talented writer, filmmaker, photographer, one of the co-hosts on the Encountering Silence podcast, and she has a master's degree in counseling. She's currently working on a Master's of Divinity at Christian Theological Seminary in Indiana. Today we'll be speaking about a few different things, including a film that she's directing about Thomas Merton. Cassidy's also on the board as the Secretary for the International Thomas Merton Society, and she's co-teaching a course about Merton at CTS. Among many other things that I will let her explain some of the things she's involved with. Cassidy, it's nice to speak with you again. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for finally being here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can talk a little bit about the course you're teaching and, and uh, how that relates to some of the work you do with regarding Thomas Merton. Yeah, so the course I'm helping co-teach at, at CTS in Indianapolis is called Merton Ministry and Contemporary Life. Mm. And it's really, I mean, just taking... We're reading sections from Thomas Merton's journals. We're reading um, many of his essays. We're reading about his relationships with his um, his abbots, mm. and just really exploring, you know, what one can explore in 14 weeks of Merton. Um, and we'll be taking actually a trip to the Abbey and meeting oh. with Brother Paul Quinnen for a walk up to the Hermitage in April. So, kind of a nice conclusion to the course. That sounds great. Is it is it yeah. far to, to drive to there? No, we're about three hours away, so it's not too bad. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And you wound up going to the Abbey for the film that you're working on, too. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on with that? Sure. I just got back from our second production trip. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working with Patrick Shen, who directed In Pursuit of Silence. And this is going to be my directorial debut. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to be working with Patrick on this. And the title is Day of a Stranger, which is based off of a essay title that Merton wrote in response to a Latin American journalist who simply asked him the question of, what is the day in the life like for you at the Hermitage? And Merton titled this Day of a Stranger in response. Mm -hmm. And Dave a Stranger is certainly a result of a desire to speak more into the importance of silence, solitude, and contemplative life, but specifically, of course, through the voice of Thomas Merton. And even more specifically, um, it was inspired by you know his move to the Hermitage, mm -hmm. uh, where he moved in October of 1964. He began receiving permission to sleep there. And then he permanently moved there in August of 1965. Um, so it's really the last few years of his life. And we have gotten access from um, the Merton Legacy Trust and the Thomas Merton Center to, you know, listen to these audio files that he recorded alone inside the Hermitage. Mm. And sometimes they're journal readings. Sometimes they're as silly as Merton reading his own resume. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're just an acknowledgement of the birds outside his window. Mm. Um and in the first trailer, there's a, it ends with this fantastic little jazz meditation he did while listening to a record in, in the uh, mm -hmm. Hermitage. Yeah, I guess a lot of people aren't aware that 
he did these audio recordings, right? Yeah, most people are familiar with um, the fact that he did talks to novices and talks to monks and nuns really all over the U.S., but uh, some of these more personal ones are, are really quite interesting. He's His voice is entirely different when he's inside the hermitage. Hmm. He's a lot, I would say, less less interesting. He's less gregarious. He's hmm. um, very bland. Um, you can tell he's not performing in any way for anyone. And I really, really like that, um, even though it's, you know, it makes for a, a challenge to to edit. But at the same time, it's precisely what I would want, because the goal of this this little short film is just to point the viewer and the listener to the hermitage within that vast interior spaciousness that we all carry around with us inside. And um, we so often fail to be with and to look at and to nurture well, it's interesting to me that he, this is towards the end of his life, and he didn't get permission to be there and to sleep there till then? Right, yeah. He was pursuing permission before then, mm-hmm. um, and he only started sleeping overnight there in late 64 mm-hmm. and not moving there permanently until the following year, um, which was, you know, kind of a, a process of of different things with his habits, but... Um, or with his abbot at the time, rather. But yeah, it it was also pretty typical. And he was, I mean, the most well-known monk there. So mm-hmm. of course, they probably wanted him around for talking to people and to mm-hmm. uh, talking with the novices and things like that. Mm-hmm. He, he was certainly, you know, a big draw for a lot of people seeking the monastic vocation. And, you know, someone like, let's say, Jim Finley. I mean, Jim mm-hmm. Finley that was one of the big draws for him was that, you know, that was Merton's monastery. Mm-hmm. And so Jim Finley, you know, entered and was novice under Merton. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, I think they were aware that they were kind of losing something by allowing him to go to the hermitage. And to learn more about Davis Stranger, the film we are working on and still raising funds for, um, you can go to davisstranger.com and, there is a donation page there um, where we're just gathering enough to be able to finish the film in terms of color correction, um, kind of cleaning up the audio, because naturally this is some old audio from real to real stuff, and um, just getting together to edit the project. So that is davastranger.com, and you can also find us on Facebook. Yeah. I have to say that the interview that you did with Jim Finley on the Encountering Silence podcast is, is definitely my favorite one that has ever been done that you guys did. It was, it was so rich and uh, I was just like, oh, this guy is such a treasure. He is just, there was just so much there. That um, was so wonderful. I'm so glad that you did that. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. He, he is, yeah, pure treasure. He, mm-hmm. um, there's something of his I, I reference all the time that I first heard him say at the Thomas Merton Society Conference in 2015, which was at Bellarmine. Mm-hmm. And um, he, what did he say? He said, um, the poet cannot make the poem happen, but the poet can assume the inner stance that allows the least resistance to the gift of the poem. 
And similarly, later in the talk, he also expressed that in the form of love and lovers. And, you know, lovers cannot make that moment of oceanic oneness happen, but they can assume the inner stance that allows the least resistance to the gift of that oceanic oneness. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I have nothing to say. I know, say. that's Finley, right? That's <laughs> yeah. Finley. Yeah, I mean, he's he's amazing. He's a treasure. Mm. And, and regarding um, silence in your life and your relationship to it, um, of course, you worked on In Pursuit of Silence, the film, and Notes on Silence, which is a great book based, um, you know, companioning the film, but also having it, it it's its own it's its own entity it's in its own right it has its own form it's kind of its own art form with photography and poetry and interviews and um, essays that that stillness and solitude um, has to have been formative in your life what would you how would you speak to that yeah um you know, this is something that I would say was evident in my life very, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember at a very young age um, the way I would deal with the vastness and the depth of my emotions mm-hmm. and fears and longings and, you know, compl- just navigating feelings um, would be, I would always, I would always go back to this prairie behind my house in Iowa and I would just lay down and look at the sky and I might talk, I might cry, I might, you know, but being in the presence of silence and having that exterior and interior silence and solitude was just a way for me to navigate all that was going on for me. Mm. And, you know, that certainly carried on into my life and, And then when I was working as a counselor, I was reading Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation. Mm. And that, and specifically his his chapter on integrity, um, many poets are not poets for the same reason Mm. that many religious men are never saints. They never succeed in being themselves. Mm. And I I might have actually misquoted that a little bit, if you want me to find that. No, it's pretty close, I think. Okay. (laughs) So, um, and that led me to visiting Merton's Hermitage, mm. or I'm, I'm sorry, that led me to visiting Merton's monastery, which led me to realizing, oh, there's 17 of these Trappist abbeys in the U.S., mm. which then led me to putting in my 30-day notice and, and mm. quitting my job to, to go there and to talk with monks and nuns about silence, solitude, and contemplative life. And there's a, a little essay in the book about kind of just this modern day pilgrimage, this modern day um, experience of, you know, kind of clinging to the the robes of monks and nuns and, Mm. you know, Amma, Abba, give me a word. Mm -hmm. And and I talked with monks and nuns at at each location and Mm. talked to them about silent solitude and contemplative life. And that is ultimately what what led a mutual friend of mine um, to introduce me to Patrick Shen and uh, led me to working on In Pursuit of Silence, which mm. uh, was absolutely amazing. Um, an incredible film to be a part of and to explore um, 
the different aspects of silence and how they impact our well-being and how they impact our world. Right. For, for people who are not aware of it, in pursuit of silence, you went to different parts of the world and interacted mm-hmm. with people who, in some way, silence is very central to their lives. Like, who are some of the people that you spoke with? Yeah. Um, so we filmed in eight different countries. Um, we spoke with uh, Dr. Yoshifumi Miyazaki in Japan, who um, works in forest therapy mm-hmm. and um, in, is studying the impacts of, of being in the forest for periods of time mm-hmm. and how that, you know, affects our brain in a very positive way. Um, we also talked with a Roshi at a Zen Buddhist monastery in Kyoto. Um, and then, you know, we also spoke with a, uh, with monks at a monastery, a Trappist monastery in the States. Um, and then some of the authors we spoke with were, uh, uh Susan Kane, who wrote mm-hmm. Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Mm-hmm. And we spoke with George Prochnik, who is the author of a book by the same title, In Pursuit of Silence. And uh, Kay Larson, who wrote a book called Where the Heart Beats, which is about John Cage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John Cage's incredible piece, uh, 433, which is a piece entirely of silence. Mm-hmm. So it was really quite a variety. I mean, we, we also talked with... Um, people that are developing more quiet products for the household. We talked with, um, you know, people in hospitals Mm -hmm. and how sound impacts healing, sound impacts um, the ability to heal in terms of communication and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so uh, went to Mumbai, India and talked with um, a woman who's leading um, all kinds of, activism against the the sound, especially during their festival season. Mm. Sumaira is her name. And it's, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. We, <laughs> David, David Betchkel, a, a, a soundscape technician uh, at Denali National Park in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, of course, the anechoic chambers. We went to th- three different anechoic chambers, the most famous being uh, Orfield Labs in Minnesota. Um, and for those that don't know, an uh, anechoic chamber is basically a room that absorbs all sound. Huh. So if you go in this room and you, you know, turn off the light and lay down, you will eventually begin to hear your blood flow and your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. And, yeah, and that's terrifying for some people. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you know, this is, I have tinnitus. Tinnitus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is why meditation's been sometimes very hard for me because I would love to experience quiet, but I always hear something. And so sometimes I have, I was helped a lot by um, Eric Zimmerman from the One You Feed podcast. And he, when I had him Mm -hmm. on, he was telling me about sound meditation that he had done, which is, you know, he would go out in nature and then just listen to everything he could listen to, focus on Mm -hmm. sounds that were natural um, if possible. And, and then I could, so I can go outside and be like, Oh, I can hear 12 birds and, and I can yeah. get pretty attuned quickly to, to my surroundings. But 
if I can hear something, um, then I don't hear, I can try to focus off of that high pitched, what sounds like a broken fluorescent light (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. ear and I, and in my head really, um, because I've gotten it checked out and it's not something in my ear, I guess it's my ears are okay, but it's just something that I, that my brain is producing that interprets its sound. So yeah. Meditation can be hard if you can't find silence, or it can be hard if you do, if, if it's silence is, feels threatening too. So people have all these different Absolutely. kinds of relationships with it. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget our interview with George Prochnik, how he talked about the, the toxic nature of silence when um, people suggest it or enforce it as something healing when they only know it as something painful or trauma-inducing. He was specifically talking about trying to bring silence to a elementary school. Mm. And um, he was talking with the class and he was saying, you know, oh, you know, what do you guys think about silence or how have you found silence in your life? And the responses were things like, you know, I know silence is, you know, when my dad gets angry and Mm -hmm. starts beating my mom or... Right. You know, I know silence as, um, you know, it, it was all threats and trauma and silent and treatment. Thing. Or, yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's something really insensitive about people imposing or suggesting silence as healing upon mm-hmm. someone who we might not know their whole story or relationship to silence. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that. You know, when people talk about silence being a rich person's reward, mm. um, you know, you can afford a silent retreat or you can, you know, you can go outside and it's quite enough to hear birds. You know, we're, we're lucky mm. and it is a gift and it can still be a very painful place mm-hmm. um, depending our backgrounds and, and what we've been through with silence mm. and silencing. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's a complicated thing. I think there is... I do think there is still healing in silence for everyone, mm-hmm. but you know I think there are situations where people it's more it's necessary to to navigate mm. what that is so it can be a safe place so it can be a loving place for someone. Right, it's kind of like water too. Water can be great, not but not if you've almost drowned. <laughs> um, right. And yeah, if you don't know how to swim. Yeah, you know? it's scary. And yeah. so I, you know, and people who've been in really urban situations, noise can be comforting and you take away the noise and everything seems really wrong. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's, it's the thing below silence, the stillness maybe that mm-hmm. you can work on befriending and that that place where you can find stillness, somewhat silence, the inner silence even mm-hmm. in the noisy place, that's kind of maybe what we're shooting for, that we can be at, you know, shalom or at peace with with something beyond our fears. Yeah, there's that, that sacred centeredness somewhere in all of us. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever considered doing intentional community or uh, something like that on your own where you would be more in a life of silence yourself? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I definitely have. Um, yeah, and I think we'll just kind of see if that mm-hmm. formulates. Right now, it's just, it's something 
that I know isn't for now, but it's definitely something that's been um, on my mind and heart. Well, you had talked about speaking about the fire within, and I really appreciate that topic um, in many ways because I uh, I have a, a kinship with it, calling my show Spark My mm. Muse. I, I have that kind of a sentiment as well. Mm. And um, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of those um, thoughts that have been you've been mulling over. Yeah, well, in an interesting transition, um, you know, when I talk about the fire within, you know, it's it's definitely related to also this this silence and solitude and this sacred centerness mm-hmm. that we all carry around inside. And, um, you know, kind of, as I said earlier, too, the hermitage within, that we all have this mm-hmm. vast, infinite interior spaciousness. And mm-hmm. when I talk about the fire within, I'm not, I'm not trying to <laughs> rebrand it or rename it or remarket it. I'm only saying... Um, that it's something to tend to, it's something to protect, it's something to behold and feed, you know, feed in order for it to keep going. It's something that we need to nurture so that it doesn't get out of control, so that it doesn't get destructive. Um, mm. It's it's the birthplace of creativity for me, that fire within. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Henry Nouwen says, says it quite well in The Way of the Heart, where he says, first, silence makes us pilgrims. Secondly, Silence guards the fire within. Thirdly, mm-hmm. silence teaches us to speak. And I kind of love this this movement he takes mm-hmm. us through. That um, you know we're we're pilgrims in life most certainly, and you know we also have this fire within that we need to tend to protect. And those two things teach us to speak. They allow us to speak, whether that's through our creative work, um, through our everyday interactions through my hello to the male person, you know, um, it's quite literally that, that host for all that we are, the host of the true self, the host of our output. When was the time that you felt really connected or enlivened by that fire, maybe at a younger age or at an inflection point? Mm. I think a time of really nurturing that inner fire and allowing it to grow um, was definitely when I was traveling to different monasteries. Um, I guess it was 2012, Mm. 2013. Um, And really ever since then, it's been very, very clearly um, lit. I'm not saying I tend to it properly all the time. Um, and I'm not saying I, I heed everything it's telling me to, to create, um, or not to destroy, (laughs) but, you know, I think that I've been able to see it since then the most clearly. Would you say, in your opinion, would you say that that place of fire has anything to do with where our spirit and the spirit of God meets. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I think that inner fire, as a as our true selves, um, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's fire is different, and everyone's fire has a pattern of burning and has a a way of being um, 
and different things, you know, dole down the fire and different things bring it bring it aflame. So in terms of um, this fire within is that that shelter for both who we are and our creative output. Um, poets have have long certainly talked about this. Um, Mary Oliver says poetry is a life cherishing force. For poems are not words, after all, but fires for the cold. Ropes let down to the lost. Something as necessary as bread in the pockets of of the hungry. She writes that in a poetry handbook. And, um, of course, uh, Vincent van Gogh, uh, he kind of writes about this fire within and the, the pain of, you know, people not wanting to see our fire, people not wanting to see our work and the impatience mm-hmm. of that. And that's when I think that our fires can can become destructive, um, both to ourselves or to other people. But um, in 1880, uh, Van Gogh wrote to his, his brother, Theo Van Gogh, and he said, there may be a great fire in our soul, but no one ever comes to warm himself by it. All that passerbys can see is a little smoke coming out of the chimney, and they walk on. Hmm. And he goes on and says, all right then. What is to be done? Should one tend that inward fire, turn to oneself for strength, wait patiently? How much impatience? Mm. Wait, I say, for the moment when someone who wants and comes and sits down beside one's fire and perhaps stays on. Let him who believes in God await the moment that will that will sooner or later arrive. Mm. So, I... It, it was interesting because this was, I think, early in Van Gogh's career, um, you know, and kind of to me represents his navigation of, oh, how do how do I how do I tend to this um, and nurture this burning within me, um, so that it might be creative and not destructive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and Merton writes a lot about this in Wolf Message to Poets and Theology of Creativity. He talks about our frustration. Um, he says, frustration is due precisely to the incapacity for positive, constructive, creative activity. Cre- creation in this sense is then nothing else but frustration failing to express itself freely and normally, calling desperately for help in a way that fails to be heard or understood. When everything is creative, nothing is creative. When nothing is creative, everything tends to be destructive, or at least invite destruction. Destruction. Our creativity is in great measure simply the expression of our destructiveness, the guarded, despairing admission of destructiveness that cries for help without admitting it. Well, that makes me wonder then, to to ask a question, as Merton puts Mm -hmm. it, it seems that our creativity has to have an audience or a receiver and that, or at least you could be really frustrated if it doesn't have one or somebody to understand it, but, and maybe that wasn't just the only thing he meant about creativity, but if it can be, it can be super frustrating if we think we're misunderstood or no one, no one understands our art or what we're making. Um, But I think that's also a trap Mm -hmm. because if that's what we're looking for, this validation to, to, make us feel esteemed or appreciated. Um, ultimately, our, 
our creativity serves the the bigger purpose of just being made i think um mm -hmm. and we can get we can get in trouble by thinking nobody appreciates us instead of just making it for the love of it because it, it is a it is a fire that uh that we're tending to not for the appreciation of other people but because it keeps us alive right, right. and i think this, that's a really important reminder for me in my life personally of two things. And, and that one is that, um, that communion with God, you know, if I'm making what I'm supposed to be making, if I'm creating and doing what I'm supposed to be doing, there's a deep communion there and an unspeakable certitude because I don't believe in certitude, but an unspeakable, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that sense of knowing that's wordless. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and Merton also speaks to this and he says, if you write for God, you will reach many men and bring them joy. If you write for men, mm -hmm. you may make some money and you may give them a little joy and you may make a no little noise in the world for a little while. If you write for yourself, mm -hmm. you can read your, what yourself, I'm sorry. If you write for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written. And after 10 minutes, you will be so disgusted that you will wish you were dead. <laughs> So, but this also, you know, it's not just communion with God. It's also for me, I found that I need com community um, in terms of, I need mm -hmm. artists in my life. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't always need to be sharing or showing my work to them, but I need, I need to know other people are tending that fire within themselves. I need to be inspired. I need to be challenged. Um, and I have to keep thinking out of the box. Um, for me, art is the best and biggest expression of theology and of God because it is infinite and it will, it will forever outlive us. It will continue to be perpetually um, existent. And so I've, you know, I've made a point to surround myself with, all kinds of different artists, writers, filmmakers, mm -hmm. poets, you know, photographers, um, and just getting to watch other people and getting to talk about these things and getting me outside of my own head also um, is very, very inspiring. I, I feel that totally the same way. It's, it's, um, artist is generative mm -hmm. and also um, being around people who are making helps us remember that we as creators and makers are generative people and that generative uh, is, is synonymous with generosity and that you can't have a spirit in, in you that says I don't have enough or I'm not enough and, and keep creating mm -hmm. well. So, so that um, if you have a community that is it's just at least in fellowship with you. It's just like I know you. I can see you. I know you're there, even if everybody isn't sharing their artwork mm. and and their what they're making and uh, patting each other on the back. Even if that's not happening with a mutual appreciation society like that, at least you're knowing um, that you're seen and that you're in in some way understood. Mm -hmm. Like I I know you're a person who makes things. I'm glad that you exist. Yeah. You know uh, that is really important because. Um, I think it's it's Joseph Gustafson, my Swedish friend who was who does the Catacombic podcast, Catacombic Machine podcast. He was on my show, and he's he was saying how um, 
it isn't it isn't any wonder that there's something rather than nothing. It's the wonder is that there's something new. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that is really what makes us surprised and encouraged and hopeful and finding redemption. You know, something new is, is redemption. You know, something um, miraculous is, is something new. And, and that's what God is about. That's, that's those generative things. Those are the surprises. And, and that's what I think artists do. And it's incumbent on artists to keep putting those things in the world that says the story isn't done yet. There's still new things. There's still upcoming yeah, yeah. things. And, you know, it's beautiful because it also, I mean, it's the, the connectivity to, um, to the art that has come before us is also really beautiful. Uh, WH mm-hmm. Auden says art is our chief means of breaking bread with the dead. Mm. And I love that. Just that communion mm-hmm. is, you know, yeah. it's beyond this life. You know, we're also co-creators with God. We're co-creators with the art that's come before us, um, the people that have, come, have, that have come before us. I just listened to a great little podcast on um, Emily Dickinson and, and her mm-hmm. uh, life as a recluse and, and mm-hmm. you know, the fact that she, she mostly shared her poetry through letters. You know, um, a friend mm-hmm. had someone die and she would send a poem she she loved through her work she she mm-hmm. poured herself out um in love through these relationships and caring about people and i think that also really can purify one's work when it's not you know um about the amount of likes i can accumulate or the amount of shares i can <laughs> gather um it's about loving the world more deeply and and nurturing it with beauty um yeah 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 and that's and that's been kind of the the big disservice of of things like social media that help artists put their work out but at the same time tie it to a commodity Mm -hmm. and say um you know your work isn't worth something if it got 10 likes but it really is worth something if it got (laughs) 10,000 right of course that's a lie total lie (laughs) it's it's like what what bigger fib would that could that be because it's it's putting your work out there is well for many people it's a risk if it's real if it's true you putting your you know putting yourself into something then putting it out there you're hoping people like it but you're also exposing something of yourself and um but if you're doing it hoping that you get plenty of appreciation and and no criticism or something like that and you're tying it really closely with yourself mm-hmm. um it that medium for kind of ties you into feeling that and and you you might do that anyway but this medium says oh no you're worthless you only got 10 likes <laughs> like your your art is worthless and kind of you are too which which is like the opposite of why would people would make art to be like look i i'm giving you something i'm sharing mm-hmm. something and it you know in in the past someone could just keep walking but now they can go Boo. Right, right. <laughs> and it's quite easy and to go, boo. maybe before they would, yeah. yeah, or worse, yeah. obviously. Worse, like, you suck, I hate you, you mm-hmm. should die, you know. But um, And now, you know, people can, I mean, there's good things, too, like Patreon. People can say, I love your work, here's $5 right. or whatever. But there's also all these people who can take 
pot shots having not lifted a finger to do any of their own work. And so it's it's interesting how we're we're tied to each other, but there is um we're we're in a season where um creativity and art and making things has been commodified and so we have to also I think as creators have to realize um there separate truth from lies why are we doing what we do and we have to do it for the for the community i'd say of creators as well make create even just for the community of creators but create because of the fire that that is creators make things and you would and i think you would probably agree with me here too but if i was on a desert island and no one would see a thing that i would do i would still make right, stuff right and I would make stuff because I, I really have no choice. Mm -hmm. I, I do things like that. I make stuff. I would maybe be piling up stones or creating pictures in the bark <laughs> or something. I'd be making things. Yeah. And probably no one would know. But I would know that part of who I am is is a creator and a maker. And if someone would appreciate it, that's great. And if it would make a difference to someone, that's great. But I know that that's kind of how I am in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that purification of that flame. I think it's good to to do that gut check of, you know, if I was in that situation, would I keep making art? Um, you're reminding me of mm -hmm. of Rilke in um, Letters to a Young Poet. Uh, Rilke says in Letters to a Young Poet, which um, is fantastic. If anyone is listening and hasn't read it, mm. he says this above all: ask yourself in the stillest hour of your night. Must I write? Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if this should be affirmative, if you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple, I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Your life, even into this, its most indifferent and slightest hour, must be a sign of this urge and a testimony to it. And he goes on to say, a work of art is good if it has sprung from necessity. In this nature of its origin lies the judgment of it. There is no other. Yeah, I I hear so many people speak about, you know, the validation of being published by a traditional publisher would be finally what they mm -hmm. hope, right? And that's mm -hmm. the stamp they're looking for. Like, then I'll be real, you know. Then I'll be a real boy. Um, <laughs> but But it is really... If you have to do it, you you do it, and then it. yeah, and yeah. if other things come, that's fine. But I know that you know it's like, well, I want to make money doing the thing I love, but it's you know, we all do, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's but it's also there's some trade off there too because once that happens, then you have to make certain considerations to make sure that certain market considerations to make sure that that can keep happening. Yeah. And there's, I mean, you know, you have to know what you won't compromise. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, you know, come across things in my story that I, I won't compromise. I won't compromise, um, you know, my story of, of being a queer woman in this contemplative world and um, the aspect that, that that holds in my story. And that's a very important part to me. And I think it's an important part of anyone's story when they find something in them or of them that might not be regularly spoken to in the world, um, that's theirs to tell. Mm -hmm. 
Well, speak to that a little bit more. In what ways do you think um, that's come up for you? Or how did that journey start taking place where you felt the kind of conflict that you're speaking of? Well, you know, I think the most important thing is I never felt a conflict. Mm. Um, it uh, Within yourself, my, but... Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the vastness of people mm -hmm. um, in terms of everything, I mean, religion, spirituality, um, gender, sexual identity... Um, and, you know, sexuality, et cetera. Um, I think these things just continue to point us to the vastness mm -hmm. of, of God and the vastness of creation and creative power and the ways in which we can continue to point to more beauty. Um, and, you know, I think that in the contemplative world, it's not something, um, you know, it's the crux of the issue is not sexuality mm -hmm. and the, the, the crux of the issue is not, um, gender or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Though I will say it's, it's nice to hear from more women in this realm. And I think it's really important to continue to, um, elevate women and elevate marginalized voices mm -hmm. and uh, minority voices in order to, to keep equalizing them. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is why that part of my story has been so important. Um, just not for my sake, but to continue to um, equalize our humanity and point to that, that equalization across the board. Um, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense yeah. or not. <laughs> well, in terms of the contemplative path, uh, mm -hmm. and it's not like, oh, there's a template for the contemplative path, and here's what it looks like. You know, it looks like a monk who's a white man it's from right. Western Europe right. or the United States, and this is a thing cloistered people do. Or, you know, it's, it's right. sometimes we get these thoughts in our head about who does what and how they do it. And yeah. I, I think that's important for people who want to to have a certain way of being in the world. Um, it, it's true for creators too, who who find themselves drawn to a different way of seeing. And, and I'm noticing, um, I'm noticing a great fatigue of, of current life as the way it is, this, this kind of, you know, the, whatever mental health challenges are happening with um, with the fire hose of media and social, you know, social mm. apps and, and things like that. And people, a lot of people that are under 35, 40 are saying, I don't know if this is good for me anymore. This mm. kind of way mm -hmm. the world is. And so, mm -hmm. and that means people across all, you know, cut straight across demographics, gender, sexuality, mm -hmm. hopefully age, not just, people under yeah. that certain age, but they're saying, yeah. I don't feel well. It's not well with my soul. I don't mm. think I mm -hmm. should have so much screen time. I don't think I should be this, feel this lonely and disconnected. I, I, you know, how and why am I creating things? And where are we going as, as people? Are we getting more divided? Are, are we getting closer? 
you know, so it's it's interesting as I see a lot of people taking some inventory. That means the ones who aren't in trauma right now, <laughs> the ones who mm-hmm. aren't uh, so stuck in, in trauma and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the people that I personally feel um, compassion for that I, that I want to speak to, you know, I, that I want to say, is there stillness? Can, is there silence? Is there enough? Would you like to walk in a different way? And it's not just for the people who look like this and are cloistered and are mm-hmm. guys, you know, and, and that, you know, this is for able-bodied people. This is for not able-bodied people. This is for, you know, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just all different sorts of people. And I think it's important for representation like that. Um, and that, you know, that um, in our in our vastness that we can be kind of guides for each other you know I I still need guides and I still look to guides and um but also that you know we might see someone like us in some way that's uh willing to at least be near us in that first step and into this journey because the contemplative path and as we all know silence can be a very scary place especially at first and um I'm always, you know, quick to say that, you know, sometimes it's it's necessary to do something like this alongside therapy. Sometimes, you know, we need medication. Sometimes we need mm-hmm. all kinds of um, things in in order to mm-hmm. to to start stepping away from this modern day world um, that just bombards us and mm-hmm. bombards all of our senses. Yeah. And you know, people that are drawn to the contemplative path typically are people that have very um, beautifully sensitive senses. Mm, mm. And um, that's a great point. Yeah. And, and, and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. And we are the feelers. We are the deep feelers and we feel everything and we feel the whole world. A, a nun once said to me when she was talking about kind of the, the, the ache and the loneliness of, of, um, monastic life and and she said it you know it reminds me that there that there's room there for the whole world um just you know in in this space that she gets to meet the whole world there and gets to hold the whole world and love it um and so we all know that that ache and the ways it transforms um when we kind of begin the contemplative path the the wells of agony and ache and dark nights seem to feel deeper and darker and the joys and elations of, um, of all life's pleasures and the simplest things like, uh, me watching the branches wave in the wind right now, mm. um, bring us joys we've never felt before in our life. Mm. <laughs> so it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a good home for the sensitive, at least for me. <laughs> Well, I I totally agree, and and yet I wasn't even remotely awakened to that until I had to deal with trauma first because I had shut down, yeah. but I didn't know it. Yes, um, I had to shut down for my own survival, and right, um, right, and so sometimes, and and as I began healing from trauma, I I had to get on medicine because my 
parasympathetic nervous system would get involved and I would start shaking mm -hmm. when I would talk and mm -hmm. I would start yeah. sweating and salivating and I couldn't talk yeah. about the trauma because my brain and body were so engaged that if I didn't get something to control that I couldn't move past talking about trauma. And yeah. so it was interesting because I was so drawn to this thing as a sensitive person, having kind of hardened up and been like, I'm not sensitive, I could take anything. <laughs> you know, right, gotten right. callous and gotten tough because, you know, you had to get tough. And it, and it's really interesting. But then, you know, this I'm the same person who, when I sit down to a good meal, unconsciously start clapping. And my friend is like, why are you clapping? I'm like, oh, I'm just so excited. This food tastes so good. I'm like a super taster, mm. right? So I'm like, I yeah. taste everything yeah. tastier or the sun is brighter this, and I, it's just how I am yeah. but when you yeah. when that's you you're very susceptible uh to the emotions of others to to feeling things harder and and not to mm -hmm. not to fuss about that or anything it's just that you do get self-protectionary and there's more threats seemingly and so you mm -hmm. do need to have your time of 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 self-care so that you can give to others not because it's selfish, but because it's self-preservatory. It's going to be so that you stick around, so that you last, and mm -hmm. um, and you don't run out of hope. Yeah, and that you know that also points to that that tension and paradox of mm. you know, quote unquote, going away from the world to love it more. Mm. And yeah, you know, it's it's often necessary, and you know. It our modern day society makes this very complicated too mm. because sometimes you know urgent things do arise and we all have to navigate on our own um, you know what that looks like is it more important for me to go away to know where I stand on something um, before I step out to speak against it write against it speak up for someone or something, mm -hmm. um, speak out. Uh, and I think, you know, we all have to navigate what, what those things are. And I think the more time I take, um, in silence and solitude in contemplation, the more I can respond appropriately to the, the urgent things that happen. For instance, if, um, you know, a very, very simple thing I would say is that if something happens in my world that is against love, um, I, I feel completely comfortable immediately responding to that. Um, whether that's, let's say I see someone be bullied, um, you know, that's not something I need to take time mm. to know where I stand on. And what's problematic with that is just that our society throws urgent things at us all mm, the time, yeah, that's true. all the time. Yep. And we find ourselves flailing because, mm -hmm. well, I could tell you, I could give you a list of a hundred things right now that aren't of or for love. Mm -hmm, um, sure. And, you know, we can also create a mess thinking like that. Um, but, you know, we, we all know our own capacity and um, <laughs> there's only so much we can do. And, you know, 
tending to this fire within and also ending the war within in terms of ensuring that fire stays um, burning in our souls, but also not not making me become a violent person towards myself or other people. You know, um, you're saying yeah. something that is that is really, really important, really powerful, because what what a lot of time happens is is not the way of soul care. So it's it's for instance, if we're engaging the world unprepared, mm-hmm. right? So we're engaging the world unprepared, but we see something mm-hmm. that isn't loving, and we like, you know, we, I have to I have to stand up and say mm-hmm. something and step in and confront, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If we've done that with our with our resource or our tank full, our resources full, we can do that uh, with that fire hose coming at us, but only for so long. And what we usually do mm. is overdo it. And then we go, oh, I need a break. I'm burned out, mm. right? But mm. but if we did, if we just did, and we see, and people, especially with with compassionate hearts, will say, the world, the weight of the world is, is killing me. It's on my shoulders. But if we mm-hmm. had a rhythm of, tending to just one thing, doing just one thing we know we can speak to or or do, whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, if it's making a film, do the one thing, or if it's, um, you know, you have a job of caring for someone or in a community or or something like that, is Mm -hmm. the first thing we think is I'm not doing enough, there's so much going on and I have to respond and getting overwhelmed and hopeless and burned out isn't it's not true that we have to contend with all of the problems of the world we just have to pick one thing and then Mm. self-care and connect with god in rhythm and come back and, and just keep doing it and just be consistent but it is almost always the compassionate empathetic people who'll be like i'm not doing enough i have to do more and then we end up ill or over rot and burned out Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's complicated and i I think it's different for everyone i Mm -hmm. I was just writing about this um on my website um and i was referencing the the shooting in new zealand um and i it for some reason led me to martin luther king jr's letters from a birmingham jail Mm. um where he kind of points to the the error of the the white moderate against um, or amid injustices, um, kind of talking about this this you know lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He writes, mm. um, and he kind of talks about this idea of um, uh, he he talks about people uh, paternal, paternalistically mm. um, setting a timetable for another man's freedom. Mm. And the reason I pointed to that is just that, you know, the timetable for another person's freedom is always now. Mm. The season for justice is always now. Mm-hmm. The hour for love is always now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's there's a way to live and abide by these things mm-hmm while still not flailing, while still not losing ourselves, while still keeping that silent center. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that takes practice. I think that takes time. I think that takes um, knowing, knowing 
who we are, our limits, and and also knowing that that work, you know, that work of freedom and justice and love is also communion with God and communion with our fellow human. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, <laughs> our world is exhausting. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's um, it's it's the work of not days and weeks and months and not even mm. years it's it's the work of decades mm-hmm. and it's the work of generations and mm-hmm. when we see that this is the work that we are also we're influencing people hopefully in in their teens to take up this work for decades and and yeah. those people training up later in two or three decades training up the same so we're you know mm-hmm. it's it's also this very long deep time perspective Mm -hmm. of how change actually happens with you know no letting up very consistent pushing forward but Mm -hmm. also realizing um the the span of time the long span of time that's involved in in how real change takes root and grows because part of the panic is thinking this is not happening fast enough. And that is um, the typical way we, we think uh, when we're younger and we haven't had a lot of experience. And as, as you get older, you realize this is hard work and it takes a while and I'm here for the long term. And so I'm going to pace myself because we act like it's a sprint <laughs> until we're mm-hmm. a little older. And then we start getting sore and we're like, hmm, actually, it's a marathon. <laughs> so, so, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like. I'm going to be very resolved and firm and not let up, but I'm also going to make sure that I've, I'm taken care of um, internally and and connected to the power source, you know, tending the fire. But it's not an inferno that's going to be <laughs> and burn out. <laughs> right. Oh, no, there's right. not enough fuel. But, you know, that it's it's this continual, nicely tended um nicely warm nicely tended fire that uh has this ongoing power and presence and boy it, it takes time to have that kind of discipline and and wisdom to know what what's the right amount of fuel for this mm. you know this is really interesting to me because um i'm reminded of uh when jim forrest was talking to me about the cathedral builder's mindset mm. Um, this idea that, you know, um, you know, when people were started building cathedrals, Mm. you know, they might be setting some of the first stones Mm. and certainly die before it's done because it took 500 years to build. Yeah. Wow. Right. Um, was it not worth their life? Mm. Um, was it not worth the work? Mm -hmm. So in the same breath. Um, I am certain, I am certainly, uh, an idealist and, Mm. and I'm certainly, I, I live in a mind where, um, diminishing or minimizing another person's humanity, whether that's their religious freedom, whether that's their, Mm -hmm. uh, gender or sexual identity, Mm -hmm. whether that's their, um, the fact that they're a woman or a man. Mm-hmm. Um, or a minority, um, I think, again, the time for that equality, that time for that justice, that truth, that love, that freedom is always now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think if I think I'm, I might be saying that there is a time for that fire mm. to burn outside of us. Mm. And I think that that is when our fellow human um, is um, being minimized in that kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an example of this, this, this cathedral builder's mindset came up when I was talking with some some Catholic friends about um, the Catholic Church and uh, LGBTQ um, mm-hmm. inclusion and acceptance and full involvement. And, you know, I think when you ask LGBTQ people in this kind of a situation mm-hmm. to wait mm-hmm. while we while we figure it out, you're asking them to waste their one life. Mm. That's not okay. Mm. And I mean, that makes my fire burn. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's just not okay. You know, it's okay for them to think and to discuss and to navigate. But this person just has to sit in the corner and wait. Mm. Yeah, it's oppressive. That's an oppressive yeah. stance right. against them. Mm-hmm. Sorry to get so heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, and I don't know. I don't know an answer to that when it's a whole institution no. either. But no, it's, right. It does seem like there are places where we can say, well, in terms of me with you. Uh, mm-hmm. It's different. It's yes, mm-hmm. this is happening in my church, but uh, or in my institute in this institution, and I'm going to be upfront and I'm going to say, um, going to stand up and say that's that's a that's a human right violation to say <laughs> to say this person is less than this person over here, and mm-hmm. I'm going to be I'm going to go on record to say. That is not our right. And to me, this person gets full human rights and mm-hmm. full rights as a child of God within the community of God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're welcome at my table and you're welcome in, this, in the situations where I have enough power to, to invite you in. Yeah. But when it, it is a huge institution, you know, the, I guess the only thing you can you can try to control what you can. And when I was talking to Father Martin and he was on and just yeah. asked him like the question you wanted me to ask him. <laughs> I don't know if you got to hear that episode. And he was and he was like, well there I said, how is the church doing with building mm-hmm. bridges to the LGBT community? And he said, well, there are some places where there's full acceptance and people tell me there's full acceptance. You know, he, he was saying there's some Episcopal churches, there's some Lutheran churches, and there's some other churches that people feel that they are completely accepted for who they are, but it's not true right now, the Catholic Church, although there might mm-hmm. be some there might be some communities and some parishes that, that might be different, but yeah, at the top, that's not true yet, and mm-hmm. even though there are plenty of Catholics that are LGBT and priests, um, that, that fall into that those cate- some of those categories, um, some of them are 
some priests are openly gay, but most of them are afraid that it will it will be a detriment if they come out like that. And you know, he he's working to build bridges, and you know, there is only so much you can do. But but it, but it is interesting that he was kind of saying there are some there are some ways to be a part of the community, but he was also it was not denigrating the Catholic Church, but he was being honest and he was saying not it's not there yet. Yeah, and I think, you know, you make an important point that it this this necessary and very urgent change mm-hmm. it does um I'm very grateful for the people that and I, I don't have a Catholic background and I'm not Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for my Catholic friends that um completely agree with me and remain and mm-hmm you know, will say in situations, okay, if, if they're not welcome, I'm not here, I'm not coming to that. Or, Mm. um, you know, in, in voicing those stances so that we can continue to make progress in different realms. I'm not just speaking about the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and everybody needs to navigate. I am certainly not the boss (laughs) and everybody needs to navigate their own, their own, points mm-hmm. of what they will and won't do for that. Um, but yeah, I just, I stand by the fact that, um, the time is always now. What was your experience in, in growing up? Um, did you like, what was your church experience? What was their stance and, and where do you find a, a home now? Um, yeah, so I grew up in the Methodist church and then I think in, you know, I love my parents for this. In middle school, mm-hmm. I I come from a family of four kids. I have three older siblings. Mm-hmm. And in middle school, it was our choice if we wanted to go to church or not. Mm-hmm. And it was very beautifully autonomous. I, I mean, if I wanted to go, I would have a ride. They would take my friends. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter where you want to go even. Mm -hmm. but, um, it just, it was my choice. And I, at this time was kind of navigating like, Oh, what's this youth group thing all about? So long story short, I, um, I I say fell into, Mm -hmm. I fell into, um, the evangelical world for, for a period of time. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately our world, especially America has really tainted that word evangelical. Right. Um, because the word itself is, is, I mean, you know, evangelizing and mm-hmm. is is not the negative connotation that we hold with it. Um, but this this was a negative connotation in my life. <laughs> um, so I was I was in that evangelical world for oh god. I mean, I would say that went through early college when I was at Iowa State, mm-hmm. and. Um, and this was definitely a time of, uh, of um, navigating my sexuality and, you know, kind of exploring all that. And, you know, luckily I, I never felt like God had a problem with it. It was just all these people. Just and, the people um, all around you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they, had a, they had a problem with it. Well, I shouldn't say they, but mm-hmm. a lot of people had a lot of problems with mm. You know, also, I, I'm a very curious person. I ask a lot of questions. Mm. I don't <laughs> I don't think I've ever believed in certitude and mm-hmm. um, and knowing. And 
so I, I didn't, I didn't belong there and mm. I didn't belong in that world. And, um, so I, I quickly figured that out and, you know, it was never like a mad at God thing or separate from God thing. It was just a, oh, that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And, oh, that's really uh, degrading and mm. um, inhumane to a lot of people. Mm. And, oh, that's not me at all. Mm. Um, and so then I kind of started going to the Episcopal Church. Um, and I really, that was also when I started visiting mon- monasteries and mm. Loved the rhythm and the... The high church the, type of... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you know, and very, very inclusive and very, very um, beautiful. I grew up with with women um, pastors at the mm-hmm. Methodist church. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was, you know, very welcome in my world. And mm-hmm. um, and so I, I found a beautiful Episcopal church in... Um, Santa Monica, California, and they happened to be um, a church with one of the first openly gay priests, uh, Malcolm Boyd, mm-hmm. and openly gay and partnered. Um, and they also held, I think, the first AIDS mass mm-hmm. in the U.S. And this church is, I mean, it's <laughs> amazing. Um, I always describe it as, you know, being able to stand next to people that, you know, are both one second shaking their fists at God and the next second on their knees. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just the vastness of questions and openness and um, curiosity. And Mm. it's just a really, really good place for me. And um, most recently, since I've been in seminary, I've been navigating Mm. uh, ordination Mm -hmm. and, let's be honest, no denomination is perfect in any way. So, Mm -hmm. um, as I've been navigating that, I've been, I've been specifically looking at the, uh, UCC church, uh, United Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's a church called first congregational UCC, um, here in Indianapolis. And they've been, um, open and affirming of LGBTQ folks since I think 1994. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, of course, you know, my idealist mind is, well, it should have been forever. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, really, really beautiful church and really, really excellent space to be. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I've, I've long realized that I don't really adhere to or belong in church spaces or buildings per se. Um, I'm not a, mm-hmm. I'm not a Sunday church gal. I'm not a, um, you know, the most, the, the place on earth where I feel closest to God and most in communion with God is in nature. Mm-hmm. And that's my walks, that's hiking, that's, you know, the times that I am able to move my body enough that mm-hmm. um, that my mind shuts off enough to mm-hmm. to commune with God, mm-hmm. um, and that's been a really good place for me. Yeah, right. And also, you would say that your your aspirations for ministry probably won't be within 
necessarily the church confines, church building confines. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that my vocation is, um, in the arts and I think it's in, uh, writing and, um, you know, hopefully more filmmaking and who knows what else, <laughs> maybe teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't, my body does not belong, um, in that kind of a, a, a building situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the, so, what about the counseling side of it? Do you see yourself moving in any of those directions or do you feel like you've left that behind? Um, no, maybe in terms of spiritual direction, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, counseling, you know, counseling was a really beautiful time period in my life. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly miss more than anything that the people I was able to just walk with mm-hmm. and walk alongside and, be with as they navigated things. And, um, I actually do deeply miss that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's, there's something for me that's outside church walls, but, um, but not unlike church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what that looks like and I don't know what that will be. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think there's a way to broaden broaden the doors mm-hmm. of the church more and mm-hmm. um and really not even the church broaden the doors of what a space of worship and love is. Mm. You know, I think this also makes me want to speak to the that that um that other societal thing that that we all live with that you know I can't do this or that until mm. Mm-hmm. Um, until I have this piece of paper that says mm-hmm. I have a master's of divinity <laughs> until I'm ordained. Of course. You know? And, of course. and I, I, I do my best to, to recognize that we are all ordained. We are all, <laughs> right. you know, you are a priest speaking to me. Mm-hmm. My nephew, my five-year-old nephew mm-hmm. is a guru that, mm-hmm. you know, speaks <laughs> more wisdom into my life than I can ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, I think, recognizing that holiness in each other that mm-hmm. you know that that god within you that is connected by your flame to god in deep communion mm-hmm. you know and you letting me listen to it and you letting me see the work that comes from it mm-hmm. um that is holy you are preaching to me you know it's i think we we live in a society that says well you you know it's not that until and it no it's <laughs> right. that right now mm-hmm. you know yeah, the the cleric the cleric layperson divide is a is a real uh, slippery slope, definitely. Yeah, and I love your writing. You are such a good writer too. Are you going to keep writing things um, beyond? Is there going to be a companion book to Days of a Stranger, or are you going to have any other uh, things you're writing about? Patrick and I have discussed uh, doing another another book together. So oh, wow. um, that's kind of that's kind of brewing. And that's been brewing actually for quite some time. So I suspect that will happen. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is a, something else I'd like to read that awesome. kind of talks a little bit about that communion um, of artists mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is Thomas Merton, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this <laughs> is uh, from Thomas Merton's essay called Message to Poets. And he read this um, at a meeting um, of Latin American poets 
in Mexico City, February of 1964. We who are poets know that the reason for the poem is not discovered until the poem itself exists. The reason for a living act is realized only in the act itself. This meeting is a spontaneous explosion of hopes. That is why it is a venture into prophetic poverty, supported and financed by no foundation, organized and publicized by no official group, but a living expression of the belief that there are now in our world new people, new poets, who are not in tutelage to establish political systems or cultural structures, whether communist or capitalist, but who dare to hope in their own vision of reality and of the future. This meeting is united in a flame of hope, whose temperature has not yet been taken and whose effects have not yet been estimated. Because it is a new fire. The reason for the fire cannot be apparent to one who is not warmed by it. The reason for being here will not be found until all have walked together, without afterthought, into contradictions and possibilities. We believe that our future will be, will be made by love and hope, not by violence or calculation. The spirit of life that has brought us together, whether in space or only in agreement, will make our encounter an epiphany of certainties we could not know in isolation. The solidarity of poets is not planned and welded together with tactic tactical convictions or matters of policy, since these are affairs of prejudice, cunning, and design. Whatever his failures, the poet is not a cunning man. His art depends on an ingrained innocence, which he would lose in business, in politics, or in too organized a form of academic life. The hope that rests in calculation has lost its innocence. We are banding together to defend our innocence. So, I, I mean, that this essay, I could read the whole thing. Um, just a few more lines I'm going to kind of mm -hmm. skip around and read. For the poet, there is precisely no magic. There is only life in all its unpredictability and all its freedom. All magic is is a ruthless venture in manipulation, a vicious circle, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Poetry is innocent of prediction because it, it itself is the fulfillment of all the momentous predictions hidden in everyday life. Poetry is the flowering of ordinary possibilities. It is the fruit of ordinary and natural choice. This is its innocence and its dignity. Okay, I have to read one more part, and then I promise I'll be done. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, let us obey life and the spirit of life that calls us to be poets, and we shall harvest many new fruits for which the world hungers, fruits of hope that have never been seen before. With these fruits, we shall calm the resentments and the rage of man. Let us be proud that we are not witch doctors, only ordinary men. Let us be proud that we are not experts in anything. Let us be proud of the words that are given to us for nothing, not to teach anyone, not to confute anyone, not to prove anyone absurd, but to point beyond all objects into the silence where nothing can be said. We are not persuaders. We are the children of the unknown. We are the ministers of silence that is needed to cure all victims of, of absurdity who lie dying of contrived joy. Let us then recognize ourselves for who we are. Dervish is mad with a secret therapeutic love which cannot be bought or sold, and which the politician fears more than the violent revolution. For violence changes nothing. 
but love changes everything. We are stronger than the bomb. Man, wow. I can send that to you as a PDF. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's like something you should, we should read like once a month at least, you know, just mm-hmm. to make sure. Oh, you, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's how I'll have to end it right there and the and the podcast right there with that because it's like how do you say how do you say more? <laughs> well, we covered a lot of topics. Yeah, I still say. Well, um, why don't you um, give everybody places you can be found online where you like people to check out your things? Sure. Um, yeah, my website is CassidyHall.com, and that has a lot of my writing. Um, and from there, you can also find me on Instagram at Cass Hall, which is where you'll get my lessons from my nephews, my guru lessons. <laughs> and uh, Twitter at Cassidy Hall. And then the Encountering Silence podcast. Um, you can find us on Facebook or EncounteringSilence.com. And you can also find me and updates on the film, Dave a Stranger. Uh, we're on Facebook at Dave a Stranger. We are also uh, online, dayofastranger.com, where you can find um, the trailer for the film. And we're also working on finalizing another little sneak peek um, from our winter trip. So another little video is coming soon from that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. This has been great. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that we're, we're doing this and talking. And it's... Uh, we covered a lot of important things today and I will be thinking about this for a long time. Mm-hmm.